Let us pray. O Lord, you have risen from the dead as you promised. Alleluia. But we are still in this valley of the shadow of death, and in our fear and doubt we are concerned how we will pass the barrier of sin and death. Let your life be ours through your joyful gospel. Amen. When some Pharisees and others demanded to see a sign from Jesus, some proof of his authority in person, he rebuked them and said, An evil and adulterous generation wishes for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but one even greater than Jonah is here. And in fact, even by that point, Jesus had shown many signs. The Gospels are full of his many miracles. It was pure hard-heartedness that made these people demand some proof beyond what they had already seen. The last sign that would be given was the resurrection itself. Jesus would come out of the earth after three days, as Jonah had been vomited from the fish after three days. That's not where the comparison ends, though. Jesus talks about this sign as one that condemns this generation because the men of Nineveh repented when Jonah preached against them, and Jonah was a wayward and disobedient prophet. And yet the people of Israel themselves, when spoken to not by a prophet only, but by the Son of God, refused to repent. We've seen the result of this. Jerusalem was destroyed. The people of Israel were removed from their land. And the word of God and the gospel was taken from them and given to the Gentiles, spread out to the nations. Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness have obtained righteousness a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, while pursuing the law as a way of righteousness, did not reach it. Why? Because they kept pursuing it not by faith, but as if it comes by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus is that stumbling stone. And even now the whole world is convinced, like Israel, that we have to attain righteousness through some work, through some accomplishment. For them, it was through those rote sacrifices, stripped of any meaning. For some today, it's the effort of justice, of ecological security, of political change. For others, it's being attached to the right God or church. But what will it take for our generation to believe? What sign do we need to turn and be made right? What should we understand from this? Well, we already have it. Can there be any sign greater than the resurrection of our Lord from the dead? Is there anything clearer than this? We have the testimony of eyewitnesses and the apostles who saw him die and then saw him alive again. And we also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Abraham told the rich man who wanted a sign sent to his brothers, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Dear Christian friends, we have the same prophetic word and the word of those who have seen your Savior alive and exalted to glory. We have God's word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the point of dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, even being able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. So witness the sign of Jonah. Your Savior is a risen, glorious word. It's not by any human means that he does it, but through his own word, by the power of the Spirit and his mercy, that he turns hearts. He brings us back to him, and he gives us the life that he won in his resurrection. Alleluia. Let's sing of that glorious word in our festival verse, hymn 348. He is a risen glorious word, now reconciled is God my Lord. The gates of heaven are open, my Jesus died triumphantly, and Satan's arrows broken lie, destroyed hell's direst weapon. Oh, hear what cheer, Christ victorious riseth glorious, life he giveth. He was dead, but see he liveth. Dear fellow redeemed, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this Easter dawn is from the Gospel according to St. Mark, the 16th chapter, beginning at the first verse. Please rise in Jesus' name. <clears throat> when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They were saying to each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and hurried away from the tomb, trembling and perplexed. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This is a blessed dawn. 
And we gather as we see these women very early on the first day of the week at sunrise. But we gather in a different way from how they gathered. They were looking for their Lord in order to honor his death. They were surprised to learn and blessed that he was alive. We gather now to seek him as well, but we already know Christ is risen as promised. In his resurrection, we see that he defeated death and all enemies, and he gives us life. The women who gathered at that sunrise were worried and doubtful. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb for us? Really, they only had half a plan. They brought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus to honor his death, and that would be a very good thing to do, but there was a very large obstacle in their way. When Joseph of Arimathea had placed Jesus in his own tomb, cut out of the rock, he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. But even more than just that stone, Matthew tells us the chief priests and Pharisees gathered in the presence of Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered what that deceiver said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise again. So give a command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might steal his body and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and posting a guard. Who will roll the stone away? That question also implies the question, who will convince the guards to let us through? We can say that this difficulty represents a greater and broader struggle, one of all mankind. The stone is sin, and the guard is the devil, and the tomb is death. Who can overcome any of those obstacles? Luther captured this in his hymn, No son of man could conquer death, such mischief sin had wrought us. For innocence dwelt not on earth, and therefore death had brought us into thraldom from of old, and ever grew more strong and bold, and kept us in its bondage. So those women summarize the difficulty very well. Who will roll the stone away for us? They wanted to get in, to serve their Lord, not remembering that it was their Lord who had come to serve them, and that the stone needed to be removed so that we could get out. What an irony that the enemies of Jesus remembered his promise, but these women who loved him and followed him didn't. The memory of the devil is a very long memory, and his work is is to deny every part of God's plan. He's called the master of a thousand arts. He pays attention to how God is working, and he's ever on the alert. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. In this, we should remember that the devil is concerned not to snatch those that are already his. That is, he's not too concerned about unbelievers. They already belong to him. But believers are those who must ever be on the alert. We have God's word and faith, and the devil is watching for any weak place that he can get in and take us. 
And so when we're confronted with an obstacle, when we look at the looming difficulty for God's success and start believing that that's impassable, that is when the devil pounces and sinks in his jaws. All he has to do at that point is agree with us. Yeah, you're right. You can't do it. It's impossible. <clears throat> but as Luther has said, the devil is called the master of a thousand arts. But what shall we call God's word, which drives away and brings to nothing this master of a thousand arts and power? The word must indeed be the, the master of more than a hundred thousand arts. You see, this difficulty loomed before the women only in their mind and in their reason. They knew the stone was there. And although Jesus had said that he would rise again on the third day, they concluded instead that human power was the highest any strength could go. Their fear rested on men. Their eyes were downcast, and they could have just left, turned around in despair. But even before reaching the tomb, they could have turned around and decided it was impossible. This was changed for them, though. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. For them, the war seemed to be concluded in defeat. Their Lord had been killed, and they only had to wait with the rest of his disciples to be destroyed in his wake. But the reality was far greater. The stone has been rolled away. The difficulty they thought they faced, the worry that consumed them, was answered more greatly than they could have hoped. Now, still their fear gripped them as they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. What would they have thought of this man? Matthew tells us that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. This is one of those heavenly hosts, one of the great angels under the general Michael who fought with the dragon, one of the members of the choir who stood at attention 33 years prior, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward mankind. But here in the tomb we see the angel is not standing armed, prepared for battle. Here he sits. He's at rest. The battle is ended. The victory is won. Jesus had prophesied when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks him and defeats him, he takes away that man's full armor in which he trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus came stronger against the strong man, the devil, and all his armor, and he defeated him, taking his plunder. He took the souls that he had chosen for eternal life. He took your soul. Christ's resurrection itself testifies with certainty that sin is paid for. Righteousness is restored. Death is overcome and the devil's head is crushed. This is the meaning of the angel's message. Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. And therefore, Luther's hymn depicts this too. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death. In vain it rages o'er us. Alleluia. 
This is where scripture says this in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see how he gives us life. Earlier in that same chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul had reasoned, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. How pitiful wouldn't we be then? How pitiful wouldn't these women be? Again, they came to anoint Jesus for his burial. They came to do death's work only, to make death palatable, to remove some of its stench. In a world of death with no hope of life, a world still soaked in sin, that's all we can really hope for, to add something of a little pleasure to the death itself. But in fact, St. Paul said, Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, if Christ has been raised, your faith is victorious, and you are no longer in your sins. Who will bring an accusation against God's elect, he asks in another letter. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died and more than that was raised to life, is the one who is at God's right hand and who is also interceding for us. That stone is rolled away from the tomb. But it wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. That's an important detail. The angel didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus get free as if he were trapped and alive inside the tomb and only needed one of his angels to open up the entrance to set him loose. No, Jesus wasn't there anymore. St. Peter writes that Jesus was made alive in spirit in which he also went and make, made an announcement to the spirits in prison. And likewise, while the disciples cowered in fear behind locked doors that evening of Easter, Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. He no longer has any use for doors or barriers. It wasn't for his benefit that the stone was rolled away. He had already passed out of the tomb. It was for the benefit of these women and for you that the stone was rolled away. It was rolled away from the tomb to prove to you that Jesus has risen, to show you that your death is defeated. The obstacle which seems so impassable is now something to laugh about. Consider further what Jesus' resurrection means, for since death came by a man, namely Adam, the resurrection of the dead is also going to come by a man. For as in Adam they all die, so also in Christ they all will be made alive. Just think about the pervasiveness of sin, because Adam... One man sinned. All of his children have been sinful. You have been sinful, and you can't escape it. I'm sure you want to. I'm sure you've tried by your own force of will, by increased devotion, by every trick of hard work that you can try to escape the pull of sin and to make your life truly righteous. But I'm also just as sure that you found yourself slipping. If you don't see how you've slipped and can't escape that sin, then you're still looking down. You're not looking up at the testimony of Scripture. Look up and see how powerful Adam's sin is. 
how heavy the stone of sin on your own chest is. And consider this, if Adam's disobedience was so powerful that through it death came upon all mankind, well then shouldn't also Christ's obedience be so powerful that through it life came over many? You can trust that your Savior has purchased your righteousness and defeated your death and sin and the devil himself. And so you are freed from the grave. Jesus said some time before his own death, when he was about to raise a friend from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never perish. Do you believe this? His life is our life. If his resurrection didn't help us, why would the angel have spoken to the women the way he did? The first thing he says to them is do not be alarmed. Angels greet many of their audiences in a similar way in Scripture. They're saying this all the time. Their appearance is frightening and alarming, and so they need to set people at ease. If their purpose is to instill fear, they won't speak this way. But when they have good news, when they are rejoicing with some strong bearing on the people they come to greet, they'll calm them first. Gabriel spoke this way to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. And then he told her the good news of the Savior's conception and birth. Similarly, the angel appeared to the shepherds and said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And just so now, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is the message that gives joy. And more than joy, it gives life and forgiveness. It's given to you. Each time we gather on Sunday for worship, Do you come into this sanctuary thinking that you'll do some paltry work for God? You think that you'll anoint death and make it smell just a little better. Instead, when you come, you might be surprised each and every time to receive instead what he is giving to you. Your Lord isn't dead. He is risen. He doesn't need you to apply the spices and ointments that you've purchased to his body. He's alive. He instead comes in his glory. He kneels down at your feet and he washes you clean. This pericope for Easter dawn leaves these women in a particular place, a very peculiar place. They went out and hurried away from the tomb, trembling and perplexed. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Angels have that effect on people, inducing trembling, perplexity, and fear, and the news should have assuaged them entirely. But why didn't it? We might be a little frustrated with these women. Didn't they believe this gospel message? And they might have. We find later in Mark's gospel that Jesus appears also to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. 
because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. We might also think of how Thomas wasn't present the first time Jesus appeared to those disciples, and he responded to the report, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus did appear to him, much to his surprise and shame, and Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And therefore, St. John wrote in his gospel, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Understand that not all who look for Jesus will find him. That is, if they don't hear the message about where to find him. These women were looking for him in the grave. Many likewise expected to find him among the dead. The gospel message set them straight, saying that he who was dead is alive. He is risen. So don't look for Jesus in dead things. Don't look for him in your own works or in glory the way you are inclined to judge it. The stone of sin is very large. The power of men is impressive. But in none of those things will you find Jesus. He is greater than all of them. And he comes to you in his word. He comes to you in the water of baptism. He comes to you in the feast of his body and blood in bread and wine. You wouldn't expect it. And these things might perplex you. But trust his word in this, his promise by which he gives you life. As that hymn of Luther's sings, then let us feast this Easter day on Christ, the bread of heaven. The word of grace hath purged away the old and evil leaven. Christ alone our souls will feed. He is our meat and drink indeed. Faith lives upon no other. Alleluia. So receive it and rejoice. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.